This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1990. Pod me. I can. The movie? Edward Scissorhands. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by Amy Nicholson. We talk about movies on this podcast and we are specifically talking about an underrated Christmas classic. That's right. Is this a Christmas movie that we're talking about today? I think so. It better be because it is December. We need to be talking about Christmas films. And this is definitely one that has a lot of themes that I would classify as a Christmas film. It's Edward Scissorhands. I adore this movie. I'm very excited to talk about this with you. I mean, to me, this is the holidays. You've got sugar cookies. You've got beautiful trees. You've got fake snow being stapled to to roofs because there is no snow, but then there will be snow. And you've got scissors for hands. Just like Freddy Krueger, Edward Scissorhands comes onto the scene and makes a giant impact on culture. I mean, this movie is big and it's oddly timeless. Uh, I think a lot of Tim Burton stuff, you know, in the moment was received in one way. And this movie was a giant hit, but it has all kind of stood the test of time. This is really the first time that I've kind of watched this movie through the lens of not just what it was like to be Tim Burton, the young boy growing up in Burbank, feeling like a misfit, but what was it like to be Tim Burton the hit director who makes art for people. And you're like, oh, do these people really appreciate my art? Is my art being valued in the right lens? Well, this is a movie about how artists are perceived, how you judge a book by its cover. It's a Frankenstein tale. It's a tale that I think you can see through so many different lenses. And I think that that's why this movie is so incredibly relatable. And getting here was an interesting path because... You know, the studio wanted some things that were different. The studio wanted Gary Oldman. 
You know, luckily that didn't happen. Um, we'll talk about more of that in, in just a bit. And we'll, we'll break down so much of this movie, but really try to understand what was going on with Tim Burton when he made this movie and why he felt like this was the time to tell this story. So Amy, take out your cutting shears. It's time to unspool it. The year is 1990, and Tim Burton is 32 years old and successful beyond anything he could have imagined as a small, strange boy growing up in Burbank, California. We last checked in with him with his debut hit film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in 1985. Since then, he's made Beetlejuice and Batman, both big hits and both big movies that we should also cover someday. But buzz around him is starting to calcify. That Burton... His stuff looks cool, but his stories, they just don't have a lot of heart. In 1990, the studios want him to make Batman 2. Failing that, Beetlejuice 2? But Burton wants to check in with himself and his own ambitions. He wants to make a personal movie with all of the heart that people think he doesn't have. It's inspired by a sketch that he drew in high school, this idea that's like running through his mind. A skinny, dark-haired kid who wants to connect with people but can't because he has scissors for hands. His agent connects him to a writer named Caroline Thompson, who just did this movie about an aborted fetus that comes back to life. The agent figures, well, they're both weirdos. They should know each other. Three weeks later, Caroline has written the script for Edward Scissorhands. It's a story about a lonely boy created by an inventor, that's Vincent Price, who lives in a tattered gothic factory slash mansion above a pastel suburb. And one day, an Avon lady named Peg, that's Diane Weist, brings the boy, that's Johnny Depp, down to live among the normies. It goes great until it doesn't. Edward, spoiler alert, is forced to kill a football jock named Jim, that's Anthony Michael Hall, and say goodbye forever to his one and only true love, Kim, played by Winona Ryder, Depp's real-life fiancé, when the movie was being shot. Edward Scissorhands opens limited on December 7th, 1990, and goes wide on December 14th, 1990. Some critics clung to the old all-style-no-heart thing, but audiences loved this modern fairy tale about feeling like an outsider. And I really feel like they still do. Edward feels as hot today as it did in 1990. Um, when I watched it again yesterday, actually, I still cried. So what was in the zeitgeist back in 1990? Well, the same song was number one both weekends, limited and wide. It is a classic about separated lovers, about a man singing across the void, telling his woman she can come in through his door anytime. It is Stevie B and Because I Love You, a.k.a. the Postman song. That you can count on me And that I'll always be around Because I love you My heart's an open door Girl, won't you please come on here That Ooh. is a roller skate with your sweetheart song if I've ever heard one. I like it. You know, Amy, it's funny. Edward Scissorhands is a, a beautiful film that I don't think I really fully appreciated until I was older, you know, because I was in that world of I love Beetlejuice. I love Batman. I I love the no heart Tim Burton. You know, I I want more big, funny, weird and less 
heartfelt film. So this is a movie that when I first saw it, I was like, eh, all right. I I, I didn't get it. Um, rewatching it years later, I, I did. And I think on this watch, what I couldn't help think about was when is Dennis Hopper going to come in and uh, start doing nitrous? Because this movie <laughs> seemingly takes place in the same town as Blue Velvet. Wait, I love that you're saying that because I had a thought, even just kind of thinking about the whole arc of Tim Burton getting ready for this episode. I was like, you know, the weird thing about Tim Burton is I think he was a weirdo kid who would have been totally happy being David Lynch, but then he gets wildly successful and he never gets to build to that point. It's just like, ta-da, you're a famous weirdo for being weird. This movie is is really beautiful because I think it speaks to this universal quality. And I, I feel like all of his movies have this at its core, which is loneliness. I can see that. I mean, his Batman is still my favorite Batman because his Batman is just a lonely weirdo who lives in a giant castle alone by himself and an inventor who makes all sorts of fun things. Not so different, honestly. I mean, Pee-wee, even though he is someone who is a, a staple of the community, <laughs> is also... He's a lonely li- boy who lives in a house full of inventions. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in Beetlejuice... In that film, the loneliness is in different spots. Beetlejuice, I think, is alone and kind of is excited to have this couple, but the couple's also kind of cut off from the world. There, There is this idea of being cut off from the world, being special, being different. You can see why people with disabilities relate to this film. It's this idea of outwardly looking different than everyone else and at first being applauded for it, and then being shunned for it. And I think Tim Burton is dealing with something even different than that, which is, I think he looked weird. I think he was weird. He didn't know how to express his emotions. He he looked like a weirdo. People treated him like a weirdo, and they didn't embrace him for the heart that he actually had. I mean, look, you talked about that in the open, the idea that people thought, oh, he he doesn't have heart in his films. He's just this image guy. And... This film, even though he didn't write it, it's personal because I think he's always trying to get past the perception of being weird. Yeah, I mean, this movie has the exact image of a robot in a factory chopping things with his little scissor hands, chopping celery. Lord only knows what on earth, like the inventor has in mind for all of that celery. And then he is brought to life because the guy holds up a sugar cookie heart in front of him, like literally gives him this sugar heart and says, What would this creature who does such good work? What would they be? And it's strange, like not even that I think Tim Burton was necessarily thinking of himself as I'm just a factory man. I'm just a company man. I am a man who does products. But I think he was worried that he was starting to be thought of as that at this state. Because kind of one of his big insecurities about Batman was everyone was like, you made Batman. You made the biggest film. Oh, congratulations. And he's quietly thinking, did anybody even see this film because of me? Or did they see this film because it was a Batman film? Am I making a factory product? Was there enough me in here? Do people like me for me, in essence? Am I being liked or am I part of a factory? Do I have to not do Batman 2 to make sure I'm not part of a factory? Well, first of all, I love that way of looking at it. But I also will say, look at the source material here, too. We're talking about a lonely inventor, someone who has no one else. He's making these things and he wants to just share it with somebody. And he makes himself a companion. You know, he makes himself a friend. 
You know, the inventor isn't someone who's living down in that pastel-colored town. The inventor is alone on the top of a mountain. You know, we're, we're talking about people who are so in their work that they're just looking for love. They're looking for companionship. They're looking for someone to see them for who they are. And and so I, I would say that, yes, what you said is true, but also that Vincent Price character is a lot sadder than that. It's not like he's this gregarious inventor. He's completely alone. That's true. And I have this weird sense of time in this movie where, I mean, we can tell from like the wraparounds that poor Edward Scissorhands isn't aging. You know, that Winona Ryder might age in the wraparound. This is like pre-Titanic wraparound. Like, oh, let me tell you a story of the past. You know, woman to child. Never-ending story wraparound. Let's see. I guess it would have to start with scissors. Scissors? Well, there are all kinds of scissors. And once, there was even a man who had scissors for hands. A man? Yes. Hands? Scissors? No, scissor hands. But then when we pick up with her later, when she's an old woman and when she's sort of saying, like, I can't go up there because I don't want him to picture me like an old woman, which just breaks my heart. I want to think, like, Edward Scissorhands wouldn't care that she's old now. He's still young, which means we don't know if these scenes with the inventor are happening, you know, before the suburbs ever made. This, these scenes could have been happening in, like, an ancient version of... The suburbs, like... You're so right, yeah. Back in forever ago days. Oh, look at this. We're really opening it up, and we haven't even gotten out of the castle. (laughs) I think that we all can identify with the idea of life passing you by, seeing people live life. You know, that vantage point, being up on a hill, looking down, seeing people happy, and... And this inventor, for whatever reason, for however long he was there, is just creating these things, not living amongst them. And I know that he might have been there ages before this movie began, but I do think that, you know, you talk about Tim Burton, who's an animator, someone who's drawing, and and and, and the time intensiveness that that takes, and then working on films, and, and the detail that he puts into all of his films. You could see this guy feel like, all I do is work, and... The world outside is going by. I'm in a dark room, this kind of black and white room, dealing with creation, but I'm not actually getting to be a part of any of it. The celery is being cut for somebody else, but I'm not eating the crudite. And I I think that looking at him like that and seeing how those scenes are styled, you know, very much like they're black and white, like they're living in the dark is, is really interesting. It's true. And I kind of just want to put this out there in case anybody listening has a beat on this. I mean, you you know that I've gotten very into making sugar cookies over the last year. Yes. And that my whole life is kind of sugar cookies. It's become yes. like my number one massive annoying hobby that I just spend way too much time on and watch endless Facebook videos about how to like make different types of royal icing. Anyway, I won't go on down this path. I could talk about it forever. They're delicious. When I was watching this and I was like, oh, all Vincent Price wants to do is also make sugar cookies, a great and underrated form of of cookie art. I want those cookie cutters so bad and I've been unable to find them because he's got that crazy looking Burton animal with like the four pointy feet and a human with sort of weird, strange star like pointy feet. 
And I would just love to be able to find those cookie cutters, especially the animal, and make those. So if anybody has any beat on how they could be made, Amy, I've told you, do not do any cookie solicitation on (laughs) this program. I love that. And it actually brings me to something I want to talk about, which is, you know, the style of this film. When we're in the lair, that, that castle, we are seeing very classic Tim Burton things, things that we'll see in, uh, you know, forthcoming animated projects, stop motion projects that he'll be doing. And that is very much a Tim Burton lair. But what I really was impressed with was the set design of the town and the way that it looked and the way that he could use the kind of a sparse palette to make things feel ominous. Um, you know, whether it was the court or the prison and, and even looking at the bank, like the the way that the the bank letters melt, but it looks like the, the wall is stained from where rain had hit the word bank. It It's like this is the way that Tim Burton as a child saw the neighborhood of Burbank as he grew up. Like he saw the seediness of the beauty. And I feel like that's what's going on throughout this entire movie. There's, It's bright, but it's also dingy and dark. Yeah, it's memorable, but it's also generic. In mm-hmm. such a strange way, like every house doesn't really have art on the walls. They just have things on the walls and they all have the same type of thing, I guess you would say, but like a different thing. I have wooden guitars. I have metal birds. I have plastic grapes. That seems to be like a huge thing for him. Like in all the interviews that Tim Burton does around this time, because this definitely feels like a personal film, journalists are asking him more personal questions than I think they usually get away with for him. And they're like, what is this saying about your childhood in Burbank? And he keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again, which was when he was a child, he kept seeing resin grapes. You know, have you ever seen resin grapes? Yes, yes. Just giant, fake, plasticky grapes. And that they always struck him as so strange. And he thought when he was a kid, they were strange just because he's a kid. And then he's like, and then you get older and you're like, no, those are just strange. Why did everybody have those? They, it's like he thought that the people that whose houses he grew up in when he was a kid owned these objects that weren't exactly art and didn't exactly say anything about them. They were just in their house, kind of random and really strange when you started to think about it. And reading him say grapes over and over and over again it gave me this just like absolute chill down my spine because one of my major memories from being four years old, maybe five years old, it was the only time I kind of went to like a creepy old big house. It was my great grandfather. It was the only time I ever saw him before he died. I went to this old man's old house somewhere in Ohio. And the only thing I remember is he had this giant dining room and it had tables on it with plastic grapes, not resin grapes, but the ones that you could kind oh of pinch my, and I had I had that at my aunt's house. Yes. Yes. And do you have this memory of just like being a child, pressing these grapes? And yes. it's all I remember of this man. That, and he also had a statue of a cocker spaniel that my mother let me take home later. And like these totems, none of those objects say anything about who this man was. I don't really know this man. But like people of this era owning stuff that is you, but isn't you at all. And it's this weird. It's Art. It's like art that is just like, that is art. And we're putting it up. We have no attachment to it, but we put it up because we need to put art on the wall. I I had that same feeling. I actually paused the movie in this scene where Alan Arkin is at the dinner table. I think it might be the scene where he's quizzing him on ethics. And behind Alan Arkin's head, 
is like three-dimensional leaves that are oh, yeah. in a pattern. And I was looking, I was like, what is that? And it it is just this ugly art. It was, And there it was, are the grapes in the house. You can hear Diane Weiss talk about them right here. You help yourself to anything you want to eat or drink. And those are grapes. And um, back here are the bedrooms. He's capturing this moment, right, where people are kind of trying to keep up with the Joneses. I think that that's what this movie also has going for it, which is like, this idea of the gossip mill. And obviously that's something that we see a lot, but this small town, everyone's kind of talking behind somebody else's back, but everyone here is trying to just have what somebody else has. Hey everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's really interesting that the bad guy's dad, Anthony Michael Hall, who's great in this movie, and I, I thought, like, why didn't he work for such a long time, like, after these films? And I, I I don't quite know. I did bump into him at Planet Hollywood one time, and he was very nice to me. I mean, I never put it together that this was the same person who was in the John Hughes movies for the really? longest time. No, like, I, I saw this as two completely different people. Well, yeah, because in John Hughes movies, he was always, like, kind of the nerd, right? And and now he is this, this like, real tough asshole. But, yeah, you know, but his, it kind of plays into this idea of, like, Burton casting everybody in this movie against type. You know? Right. That he, he's going to take the guy who always played the, the nerd who doesn't get the girl and make him the asshole jock who does get the girl. He's going to pl- take the girl who's always playing the dark goth girl and turn her into the blonde cheerleader. And he's going to take the heartthrob from TV and turn him into the weirdo. And I, I I wanted to kind of even dig in a little bit more about the villain because the character's wealth is anachronistic to the town. When we see them on TV, it's very much like Hairspray, right? It's, it's old school 50s, 60s style television, those big cameras, those kind of cheesy sets. But then... Anthony Michael Hall's dad, who we don't see, or maybe we see him at the barbecue, but that's about it, you know, has CD players and VHS machines. And I thought that was really interesting. When they go into that room, it is like the high-end version of the 70s, but Anthony Michael Hall drives a car that doesn't feel like it's of this time. And I was wondering about that, too. And like, what that... The black van with the flames... Although I guess that's his buddy's van, because like his whole selling point to um, Winona is like, come on, baby, let's get our own van. Jim, I don't want to. You don't want us to have our own van like Denny's when we could be by ourselves whenever we like? Huh? With a mattress in the back? Well, why can't you just do it? Because my father keeps the damn room locked. We need Edward to get us in. Well, can't you take the key like when he's sleeping or something? Look, you don't understand. The only thing he hangs on to tighter is his dick. (sighs) Come on, Kim, Razor Blades will do anything for you. What do you mean? That's not true. Oh, no? Why don't you ask him? That's not fair. What's fair got to do with it? There isn't any other way. There's gotta be. Look, I've racked my brain. Don't you want us to have our own van? Yeah. 
it's funny because like for the longest part of the movie, Edward Scissorhands is the only thing in black cutting through all of the pastels. And then suddenly there's this like black van with flames that's like even more metal than his like kind of BDSM tight leather pants. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting character too because I feel like we see Anthony Michael Hall through the eyes of Edward for the most part. I know that that's not 100% true, but... You know, we don't really even understand what's going on with him. Why is he even like this? Yeah, and I think that there's this real built-in animosity that I think you can feel coming from Burton about this character. You know, right. he like would say in interviews at this time, like he was always horrified by guys like this because they always had girlfriends. They look like football captains. They're the image of the American dream youth, yet they're scary and they're violent. And he talked about them almost as kind of like the power of image, I guess. That he said that girls respond to the image of a person who looks like the image of success, and then they get bullied, and then they get frightened and kind of pushed around. This is a movie where there's the guy who looks scary, who's the big sweetheart, and then there's the guy who looks like the person you're supposed to date, and he's the asshole. Well, there's this thing that Anthony Michael Hall brings. We talked about like how he had been doing these like geeky, charming characters in John Hughes films and other films. And here, there is that charm to him. He hasn't lost that, right? But then you could see this other side, right? This this side where the town loves him. The town will follow him. I mean, he is the catalyst for why the town turns on Edward. And we see both sides, but the town doesn't. And I think that that's really interesting because bad guys that we've talked about in the past, whether it's, you know, Johnny from Karate Kid, like in this era, there's nothing about them that is really good. And I think what we see here is someone who is charming, charismatic, popular to some, but to others, he's the biggest asshole and dick. And so, you know, we see Edward see him treat his girlfriend like that. We see him treat Edward like that, but no one else sees that side. And I think that that's actually... Yeah, he agrees a lot with Alan Arkin. He's like, yeah, you're right. I should, I should get my own car. Yeah. Yeah. Like he says all the right stuff there. You know, and, and I think he becomes this harmless guy to most because he's just the jock, right? He's the football guy. That was something that probably Tim Burton is watching. He's a person who is an animator, an artist. He's drawing things. He's looking at people. He's looking at people when people don't even realize that they're being watched. And I feel like that kind of nuance that this character has is really interesting. He He is Edward. Well, yeah, and what's kind of funny is like, you know, he's 32, right? When this movie is made, he had already been to his 10-year high school reunion. And he said the weird thing about his high school reunion was that he noticed that already just in 10 years, all the people who were losers were doing pretty good. And all the people who were popular were already on the downslope of their life. And so he kind of walked away from it being like, this was his quote on it, you know, those who were tortured were forced to be their own people. They couldn't rely on the society, the culture, and the hierarchy to take care of them. And I thought that quote was interesting, not just like, oh, outsiders, they make it all work. Because in a way, what's weird to me about this movie is, yes, it's about outsiders. Yes, it's relatable. And then what you kind of realize in the reaction to this is that everybody feels like an outsider. I mean, this is a movie where the TV rights were eventually bought by the Hallmark Channel. Like, they're, everybody feels like Edward in their own way. But that second line of it, that you can't rely on society, culture, and hierarchy to take care of you, that's fascinating. Because what, what this movie is about is what happens when like society, culture, and the hierarchy turn on you. You know, this movie is saying make your own path. Do your own thing. Be an individual. Don't follow the world because that makes the world better. We don't need another cog in the machine. And, 
And unfortunately, what Tim Burton is also saying is the people who don't follow are not doing well, right? Like the, the people who do are just kind of creating this this system, this kind of cookie cutter world that this world is really based in. And it's funny in the test screenings of this film, which were famously incredibly bad, people were sympathizing with Anthony Michael Hall. They were like, no, Edward's a dick to him. We want Anthony Michael Hall to kill this guy. He is a weirdo. I mean, there have been a lot of people being like, he stabs him in the chest. He stabs him in the chest. And that is very, very far. It also on set, Johnny Depp did like accidentally stab him with his pinky and he did start bleeding. But like, what are you going to do? You're, you're acting with scissors on your hands. It's very hard to be delicate. Well, yeah, I mean, look, that's just a cruising for a bruising. You know, I remember <laughs> well, a terrible story, but on Hollywood Walk of Fame, like there, there's a guy who plays Freddy Krueger and he had real knives for hands and uh, <laughs> and did get into uh, a stabbing match with another uh, one of those Hollywood characters. It's like, yeah, yeah you don't you don't need to put knives on your fingers. We got it. We got it. World's dangerous enough. We don't need these knives on your fingers. But that, that is the thing that really surprised me. I'm like, wow, they really just had him walk around with knives on his fingers. I mean, you would think of anybody on this planet was like, hey, I've been on sets where people have knives for fingers. It can be dangerous. It would be a man who died in the very first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I mean, that circling around of depth of like, here's your first movie. You're going to get killed by a man who has knives for hands. Now you are the man with knives for hands. Good luck. By the way, I, I, I thought about that, too. This is a tricky needle to thread. Edward Scissorhands and Freddy Krueger take away everything that we know. Take away culture. Just put them next to each other. Two scarred men with knives for hands. Like, you know, it's like, it's a really interesting thing. They're both outcasts. Obviously, one is a uh, pedophile. The other one is just a robot boy. The uh, townspeople are against them. Let's not ask why. The townspeople are against them. Exactly. We're taking away all the backstory. (laughs) I mean, Tim Burton's favorite thing to put people in is like stripes. You wonder if he was like, oh, man, it's killing me that I can't dress this guy in stripes. (laughs) But it does mean that, like, yeah, they had a hard time selling it. You know, how do you sell this movie where it doesn't look like a Freddy Krueger movie? Yeah. And and how do you get people to sympathize with this? And I, I think that this movie is actually really wonderfully patient. It does a great job of taking its time. It's like a full hour before things start to turn. I think about at the hour mark, he's cutting people's hair. And you start to see this idea of people want things from this person or they want them to be a certain way. And I I was thinking about that a lot with the idea of like stereotypes. You know, you've heard this like thing, oh, that's the token this, or that's the, you know, we, we, we bring certain people in expecting them to act a certain way. And when they don't, and this is across the board with anything, you know, we get upset with them, but we are only bringing them in because we are looking at them in such a superficial way. Everyone who loves Edward doesn't love Edward because of who he is. People love Edward because he's talented, because he's interesting. And then the minute, you know, he doesn't give them what they want for talent, they kick him to the curb. It's different than the Frankenstein story, right? Because it's sort of like, what can I get from you? Oh, how can I manipulate you? How can you be good for me? Exactly. Frankenstein, they're just like, you're scary. We don't trust you because you're scary. 
And it's like, ooh, we trust you. You're different and cool and scary. You know, it's like there's, but then once you betray us, now you're scary again. Exactly. I mean, that to me was becoming kind of like the parallel that I was watching this movie from is thinking still like, you're Tim Burton. You just made Batman. Everybody's like, you're amazing. Keep doing Batman. Right? Because mm. this this is so much a movie about like, you're an artist. You make art. But are you making art for the right people? And are they respecting your art? And do they respect you because they like your art? Because you, when you think about what Edward does when he comes down here, it's like, here's this suburb. It's pretty naked. You know, there's almost no greenery, really. There's almost no life outside. But what he's able to do is he takes the bushes that there are and he turns it into this like fantasy playground of like dolphins and bowlers and ballerinas and people playing soccer. He like comes down and in a couple of weeks, like, literally changes how these people see the world, you know? Well, well, he makes them different. They all have the same haircut ultimately before he starts cutting their hair. Their lawns all of a sudden look different. You can tell the houses apart. You're right. You can see something in what these people are like by what's in their yard. They yes. get to distinguish themselves as individuals. He makes them individuals. But what I think the movie says is we don't want to be individuals. We don't want to stand out from the crowd. We want to go back to kind of fitting in, fading back into the distance. Yeah, or do we? Like, right? Because that's the debate that they're having even on that television show. Have you ever thought of having corrective surgery or prosthetics? I know a doctor that might be able to help you. I'd like to meet him. We'll get that name after the show. Thank you very much. That's very nice. Anyone else? Yes, stand right up. But if you had regular hands, you'd be like everyone else. Yes, I know. <laughs> I think he'd like that. <laughs> But then no one would think you were special. You wouldn't be on TV or anything. No matter what, Edward will always be special. It's like there's this thing in here where everybody sees this art that this young man makes. And one of the interesting things about the art that I think he makes is like he's a creator who kind of in a way makes what he wants. Like you don't see that many people tell him what they want him to do artistically. Like maybe Joyce right. will be like, I like my dog to have a bouffant kind of like me. But nobody's like, do my hair exactly like this. He kind of invents what he thinks they should be. They they trust him. And I also feel like that's kind of an interesting parallel to Burton at this moment is like he's finally got enough juice to sort of earn some trust. Like that's kind of the relationship he's in a bit with Fox where they're like, we'll let you write this script. We're not going to give you any notes till it's over. And if we don't make it, you can have the rights back. Like they're being really permissive with him to see what, the pressure of coming up with art when you kind of have a little bit of a blank check seems right. intense. And then you don't even know how far that blank check is going to go because then they might still say you have to cast Tom Cruise in this movie. Which, by the way, is not an exaggeration. They wanted to cast Tom Cruise or even Gary Oldman, even though uh, in Tim Burton's mind, it was always going to be Johnny Depp. Yeah, I found an interview recently where Gary Oldman's talking about why he said no, because he said no. I can't tell you one story that they were interested in me many years ago for Edward Scissorhands. Really? And I read the script and I went, it's ridiculous. There's <laughs> a castle at the end of this road and then an Avon lady comes around selling makeup and this kid's got scissors hands. This is, this is nuts. I don't get this at all. And ended up not doing it or not even, I don't think I even went in for a meeting. I just said, it's not, I, I, I don't get it. And I go and see the movie and the camera 
pans over these multicolored houses in this very sort of suburban neighborhood, and then you see the sort of Dracula castle on the hill. Literally two minutes in, I went, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I got it. I just got it too late. And I think that would have just been such a different movie because Oldman seems like he'd be a little bit more of a misfit monster. And Depp is just a baby. He's just a little puppy dog baby. Yeah, you don't want anything to feel adult or scary. And and I would argue that Tom Cruise, even as a young man, looked more like a Patrick Bateman than a sweet baby, right? Like there's something mm-hmm. about him. Like he looks the part of the typical Midwestern man, right? On, on some level. I think that that is true for Tom Cruise. Whereas Johnny Depp, you put him in that makeup, you have his hair like that, and he looks like a Cupid doll. Like you automatically feel for him. Like, And I guess my question to you is, do you think that Diane Weist was wrong for bringing him down? Oh, wow. You mean when she's kind of talking aloud out loud, thinking I didn't think this through? You know, when I brought Edward down here to live with us, I really didn't think things through. And I didn't think about what could happen to him. Or to us. Or to the neighborhood. And now I think that maybe it might be best if he goes there because at least there is safe oh i don't know it breaks my heart because something in me really wants to be a peg you know wants to be a person who like always leads forward with empathy right because her first thing with him is just like she's maybe a little scared but also how can i help you you know you really just hear that shift like in the kind of the music and the tone when she sees this poor guy who's hurt himself and she's like clicking into business of, like, what can I do to make this person's life better? What happened to your face? Hmm. No. No, I won't hurt you. But at the very least, let me give you a good astringent, and this will help to prevent infection. You know, her whole thing is, like, can I help you? Here, maybe you should dress a little bit more normal. I've got some old clothes if you'd like to wear them and not just, like, walk around dressed in BDSM wear all the time. Can I help you get dressed? Sorry, Edward, I didn't... Oh, dear. May I help you with this? Thank you. And I mean, isn't that just the dilemma of this movie that I feel like really tears at your heart? Is like, all she wants to do is the right thing, but what is the right thing? That you can wind up maybe terrorizing people and having somebody die. But I would also argue this is such an American point of view, which is like, I'll fix it. I'll be able to fix it. And then when they can't and they don't have the tools to be able to do it, they kind of like, uh, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. You know, like there is this idea, like she brings him down, I think partly selfishly. She sees somebody who actually she can help, that she wants to help, but honestly, somebody who will listen to her, right? Because she's getting the door slammed in her face, not actually, but but kind of, you know, people don't have time for her. And then she finds this person who actually will listen to her. Her husband doesn't even listen to her. Her daughter's not home, you know? And she's like, well, I'm going to make you my little pet project. She, she takes him in like a dog. And then when she realizes it's not as simple as that, she does kind of abandon him. She, then that clip that you just played kind of, gives up like well now it's too hard it was easier when you were just this cupid doll that didn't really speak and didn't really have feelings but as he gets in you know 
a part of her society. I, I think that if you're going to blame anybody here, the, one of the big villains, and even though I love Peg, is Peg. Oh, that's so mean. I mean, but she's a villain who gets punished too, like, because she brought him down. All of her friends don't even come to her holiday party anymore. After that's... they go to her barbecue. That's also just... She I doesn't mean, I'm just saying, have the barbecue. Uh, I just feel like she wants a little bit of something. I think she wants a little bit of something. Oh, I don't know about that. Like, I think everybody else does, but I don't know about her. I want to believe that she's just like a pure-hearted, helpful person. But I mean, I'll go with you everywhere else because I do feel like you can see that the housewives, everybody else, is just so lonely and they're going out of their minds. I mean, one of the first things we ever see in this is like Joyce desperately hitting on like the guy fixing her dishwasher. And out she pops. You know, on TV they say you repairmen are a lonely bunch of people. Housewives get lonely too, although you may not realize it since they haven't made a commercial on the subject. And then you just take this and put it back in here nice and easy. Be careful not to force it. I mean, she tells this man, my trap is clogged. That's fascinating. I don't want to miss a minute. Can you imagine the boredom these women feel? Please tell me more about my broken dishwasher. Well, she's flirting. Yeah, she's flirting, but she's so bored. I mean, the guy's name on his like little name tag is Guy. He couldn't be more of just a generic man, anybody coming to fill the void. So, of course, when somebody shows up who's like a little bit more interesting, she and all the other women go absolutely nuts. People are looking for gossip. People are looking for what to talk about. There's nothing to talk about. This town, no one's an individual. People have this weird art on their walls that don't even mean anything. This is a town of people who are exactly the same. So they're going to eat up and spit out somebody the same way that Hollywood eats up and spits out Tim Burton. Look at it. Isn't it different? Isn't it cool? Now we're tired of Tim Burton. He doesn't do enough. He has no heart. Boom. Like he just, you, you know, this is the story of the weirdo who was brought down to the shiny Hollywood town and spit back out because now they feel like the trick has been seen and now we're on to the next thing. Right. And then the weird joke about it is that he doesn't get spit out. Well, I think you're right. I think that what happens is people identify with this story and then all of a sudden this lonely person realizes, oh my God, everyone is lonely. Everyone is feeling this way. If I'm Tim Burton, I'm learning a lesson there. I'm going, oh, Anthony Michael Hall feels this way. You know, everybody has this feeling. This is the the most, I think, the most universal truth of any of his films. Yeah. Everybody has this feeling. Everybody might dream of making art, I guess, from it. But then you also have people like the dad, like Alan Arkin, being like, okay, cool, but how are you going to make money? Speaking of money, I understand you're not charging for your gardening, Edward. Now, Bill... Marge made him cookies today. Sweetheart, you can't buy the necessities of life with cookies. You can't buy a car with cookies. Am I right, Jim? Oh, that's true, sir. You can't. You know, the way that, like, Alan Arkin's character is written. I mean, when Alan Arkin was trying to describe him, he was like, I don't really know. He likes lawnmowers, and he likes thinking he's a dad, and that is about it. And, like, you never know what he does for a living, but you do kind of get the sense that, like, He's projecting, too, that he is not like a self-made man. He says at one point he doesn't work for himself. He works for a company. If he sees this guy who's working on his own, he's kind of like squashing him a little bit, trying to shape him in his direction, acting like he's the authority, even though he doesn't understand it. And that definitely sounds to me like Hollywood executives trying to tell artists what art should be. Weird watching this movie like in kind of like a 
post Me Too stage because he Edward gets Me Too'd in a certain way. You know? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. A woman takes him to the back. She's offering him opportunities. He gets attacked, mauled. Yes. Mauled. Mm-hmm. He gets mauled a bit. He realizes that a person is only helping him with his career because she thinks he's hot. But then when he tries to talk about it to like his family, nobody actually will acknowledge what just happened. So, Edward, did you have a productive day? Mrs. Monroe showed me where the salon's going to be. You could have a cosmetics counter. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Great. And then she showed me the back room where she took all of her clothes off. Edward, I can't tell you how thrilled I am. I'm just as pleased as punch. This whole beauty parlor venture is going to teach you volumes. There's nothing like running your own business. I've never done it myself, but from what I gather, it's the greatest satisfaction a working man can have. And you just hear like Alan Arkin is like continuing to kind of steamroll him about like how we should handle it. Ignore what happened to you. You know, it's very much like it's okay, you're fine. But you do have that little beat of like silently Diane Weist and Winona Ryder make eye contact about it. Like they know that something is wrong, but the younger kid is oblivious and the dad just ignores it. And nobody ever actually talks to him. And then Joyce just gets to go and kind of create her own story about what happened and tell everybody about it on the phone. Well, did you hear what he did to Peg's curtains? It's unbelievable that they're having their Christmas party anyway. Are you going? Well, I don't think so. He practically raped Joyce, you know, threatening her with those knives of his. It's a miracle she escaped. Oh, I don't have anything against Bill and Peg, but... I know, I know, and they've got that teenage daughter in the house. Oh, those poor things. After what happened to me. Can you imagine? What did you say to Peg about the Christmas party? I said I hoped we could make it. I lied, too. I mean, it almost feels like Edward Scissorhands is like proto-milkshake duct, right? Like, here he is. Isn't he wonderful? And now we must figure out what's wrong with him and everything's over and we destroyed it. Yeah. I mean, the difference with Milkshake Duct, in my opinion, is, oh, we reveal that this person actually is a bad person. Like, oh, you didn't know. We raised this person up and then we uncovered something bad. Where here it's more disheartening because he is a sweet person. An accident happens. Because someone was standing too close to him, it was Winona Ryder's fault. And it was also the boy was going to get hit by a car. He saved the boy. Like, But people don't look at actually what happened. They make a snap judgment. And then there's no way to fix it. There's no way to see it any other way because it activates a preconceived notion of what this person is. I mean, I, I can't help but look at this through the lens of like race, you know, in that way. It's like, well... Okay, but the minute you do something that even seems similar to a stereotype, we're after you. We got you. You know, there's there's no second guess. There's no, let me get all the facts. It's just an immediate attack. Right, or that thing where it's like they've been pushing at him, pushing at him, making judgments about him. And then when he finally gets angry and starts like slicing up the wallpapers and the curtains, they're like, oh, we always knew he was trouble. Yeah, because they always thought he was a monster. I mean, that's it. They always thought he was a monster until he benefited the community. And and who knows? Maybe that's why Vincent Price lives up in that that castle. We don't know. You know, you talked about that idea like, oh, maybe he's been working there forever on this. But the truth is, is, you know, maybe he was the the prototype Edward Scissorhands. You know, he was the 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 outcast that was interesting, that made cool inventions that no one wanted. They were like, no, 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 you have to make the assembly line for a Ford, not, you know, a crudite machine.
I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. There's all of these complicated dynamics that are happening down below about like guilt and preconceived notions about people, about taking what you want from people and discarding them as like humans. There's all of this messiness of human behavior that he's really unequipped for because everything that Vincent Price tells him about is like book etiquette that has nothing to do with the real world. You know, he really does not equip him for any of the actual messiness of what happens when you really meet real people. Let's pretend that we are in the drawing room and the hostess is serving tea. Now, many numerous little questions confront us. Should the man rise when he accepts his cup of tea? May lump sugar be taken with the fingers? Mm, no. Uh, is it good form to accept a second cup? Now, should the napkin be entirely unfolded or should the centerpiece be allowed to remain? It is so easy to commit embarrassing blunders, but etiquette tells us just what is expected of us and guards us from all humiliation and discomfort. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that book advice itself, it does make you feel like he's coming from some ancient time period where like the most pressing thing if he ever goes down is will he sit properly at the tea party. It is like he's never met anybody. And it's so funny. One of my favorite things um, to look for when I was researching this was like old news footage of them shooting this movie on location because it's not that different from the movie, honestly. Tim Burton wanted this to be in Burbank if it was possible, but he really didn't feel like it was because the Burbank of his youth had this kind of newness to it Mm. where it was still kind of raw. It was still sort of sprouting up from the ground as like a development in the Burbank that he lived in now, everything kind of seemed older, especially like the trees. There were trees there and it made it feel like this was not a, a new development at all. So they go to this kind of cul-de-sac that's like outside Tampa, which, you know, was brand new. Like the house that they shot Edward Scissorhands in, I found it on Zillow and it says it was only built in 1989. So wow. brand new, tiny little neighborhood. I always thought so much of this was like models in CG. So to find a clip from Florida News from this movie being shot where they're like, oh my God, there's a castle here in Florida is so funny. I just have to wait a second. I didn't realize that's real. Uh Uh-huh. Listen to this. What has heads turning is the castle. Yes, castle that has appeared on the hill nearby. Oh, started about a month ago. Uh, I saw some activity up there and uh, a lot of lumber going up and uh, pretty quick it started taking shape. What's up there? It's a castle. Looks like Disney World, doesn't it? (laughs) It isn't Disney World. What it is is a movie set for a fairy tale type film called Edward Scissorhands. Okay, you're as astounded as I am that this castle was real? It never occurred to me. Okay, wait, wait. This is so crazy to me. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I really was thinking about that. I was like, oh, I like I felt the same exact way. I was like, oh, that's a model, and he's shooting it in this really interesting way because we don't really feel it, we see it. 
Well, look, that's Florida for you. By the way, tiny like detour on the house where they shot this. Somebody bought the Edward Scissorhands house in the year 2020 for $225,000. They tried to flip it just a couple of years later for $700,000. They turned it into this like home slash museum called Scissorland, where they took a whole room of it and they like filled it with old articles and like props about the making of Edward Scissorhands. And it does not look like it turned out very well because the current value, according to Zillow, is only $350,000. So I think they tried to like sell it to collectors and collectors were not buying it. But yes, it, it was a very, very new residence. And weirdly, I didn't know this either. I thought like most of the suburban houses were probably just like also models, but they painted 60 houses in this suburb, 60 houses to get that look. They actually painted them and most of the houses still had the residents living there who just kind of hated the color of their houses, but got used to it. And they would take their lawn chairs out at night and like sit in their front yards with beers and just watch the movie being shot. And people were like, the only way you can tell the um, extras in the movie from the people who just live in this weird ass neighborhood in the middle of Florida is because the extras have strange haircuts. The weirdos are just there. Oh, I love that. And now I'm in a real wormhole of looking at these houses. And if you look at them today, they don't look anything like them. They These houses were not bizarrely shaped, but they were put through the lens of the Tim Burton eye, right? They This is a normal looking house. It just has been Tim Burton-fied. And that's the bank. And that's everything that we go through in this movie. And I, I think that it's an interesting way to look at how an artist sees the world. Well, yeah. And that's why I kind of then wonder... What would have happened to Tim Burton if his first movies hadn't made him so much money? Because, like, I think there is this interplay here between, like, being the outsider but also having the budget to paint 60 houses in Florida and take over an entire suburb. Like, I think there is a version of Burton that didn't get embraced by the establishment and got to do his own weirder stuff in a wormhole. But him kind of wrestling with this idea of, like, I'm super weird, but people want to give me millions and millions of dollars and like they think that I'm going to be a huge success. That's a, such a strange type of weirdo because I think most of the weirdos we've covered on this show have come up through cult stuff, you know, like John Waters. I mean, there are only two people in 1990 who thought that you could take the guy who was on 21 Jump Street and cast him in a movie. And it was John Waters who made all of his stuff for $500 and a bunch of drugs. And then Burton, who never didn't have money to play with, which is so weird. And... The interesting thing that pulls them together, like you said, is Johnny Depp, who is willing to kind of try to be anything but the heartthrob. He wants to be the weirdo. He wants to play these roles. Like he is actively going against what people want him to be. I I will say, I don't think that Tim Burton suffered for his art, right? Like, I don't think that he was ever co-opted. I mean, the next movie he makes after this is Mars Attacks. Like, you couldn't make a weirder film. I love Mars Attacks. It's weird as hell. I love Mars Attacks, too. The international sign of the donut. I mean, it's so funny. But to me, I feel like he's somebody who really never had to put it away. Maybe now he does, you know, but he really had a giant run and Academy Awards. And, you know, yes, there were, you know, films like Sleepy Hollow in there, but I don't think that Sleepy Hollow was the studio interfering. I guess that's what I'm saying is he never had the studio interfere. Are all of his movies good? Absolutely not. Some of them are derivative. Some of them are just plain weird. But the reason why he kept on making, you know, his movies the way that he wanted to make them was because maybe every two or three, he'd have a big giant hit. 
And no one could predict which one was going to work. I mean, he definitely, when I was a child, felt like the biggest director who ever existed in the world, like him and Spielberg, which is why I think it's like really funny that around this time, he and Spielberg actually worked together on a cartoon. They make that cartoon called Family Dog, and it's a gigantic flop. But they were the two people who were like, here is what a director is, young child, if you're trying to understand who directors are, why a film is made by a certain person, not another person, that it's not just like a thing that comes out of a VCR. And I will also say that adding to that is the way that Tim Burton looks. As a kid, seeing this dude who looks a little bit like Eric Bogosian at the time, he's got these big glasses on, he's dressed kind of crazy, wearing like long trench coats. Like he looks like your comedy version of what a director would look like. You know, he when he's sitting next to Batman, he kind of fits in with Batman, right? He's a rock star. You know, he is, you know, whether or not that was intentional, but I do think he he opens the doors for other weirdos to tell their stories. You know, I, I couldn't help but think of Wes Anderson and and like people who love to get in minutia and, and you know really get into these like little details. And he I think does the most important thing, which is unlike John Waters and unlike David Lynch, he says, Oh, my weirdness can be financially beneficial to you. And that's, you know, that opens, I think, more doors for future weirdos than anything else. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy who you know, will go on talk shows at this time and claim that he was the neighborhood weirdo. Uh, you know, you don't set out to be an outcast. Somehow society has a way of putting you in that. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I like to, yeah, I, 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 I would do things in my neighborhood like... Uh, uh, pretend that uh, you can do it with younger kids, you know, because you, they're more gullible. Um, like, uh, pretend that there was quicksand in the uh, in the backyard. Or, or one time I, I convinced this other kid that they his parents had put too much acid in the pool. Mm -hmm. And I threw some clothes in the pool and said his brother had disintegrated. <laughs> and he ran screaming to his mother. So what I, a fun guy to have around the neighborhood. <laughs> but then he does, of course, also have a life where he, like, graduates and he goes to work at Disney. You know, and Disney lets him kind of do some weird stuff. You know, he gets to know Vincent Price because he makes this also mildly autobiographical cartoon called Vincent about a little kid like himself who just wants to be Vincent Price, narrated by Vincent Price. Vincent Malloy is seven years old. He's always polite and does what he's told. For a boy his age, he's considerate and nice. But he wants to be just like Vincent Price. But I find it just fascinating to, like, see a person who kind of comes up at right the moment where a weirdo just gets rewarded for being a weirdo over and over and over again. I guess if, in a way, this movie is about putting people in boxes... You know, and I maybe have this own restrictive box in my head. Shouldn't a weirdo have a harder life of it? Like, what happens to a weirdo if they succeed too fast? Kind of like how Kevin Smith, he would say, like, one of the problems for me is I got really famous with my first film and I didn't have enough life experience to, like, make other films after that because I just got famous really young and I didn't, nothing else had ever really happened to me. I made a story about me and it was pretty good, Clerks. And then what? I hung it at the mall and I have no idea. Nothing else really ever happened. But you see, I have an issue with this theory because it's 2023, almost 2024, and Tim Burton is still thriving. I mean, Wednesday was the most watched show on Netflix. Like, he is 
Gozander comes up, goes under, comes up, and it and he's never changed. He I mean, keeps I don't on know if making... he even goes under. Doesn't all his stuff make money? Well, I don't know if like the Dark Shadows makes money or you know like I, but I feel like he goes through waves of popularity. Well, I think where I've been kind of grappling with his legacy right now is I've been in a mindset of Burton is just really samey and sticky. And so for me, it was valuable to go back to a movie that I genuinely love. That's a lot of why I wanted to do Edward Scissorhands is to remind myself how much I deeply love Burton and to feel that again. And when I trace him back through the 90s, because there's been a lot of overlap in my head, I feel the same way about Burton as I do about Depp because they make so many films together. And I felt like Depp got really sticky and Depp sort of figured Mm -hmm. out what worked in this character, this kind of like leaning into doing almost like a modern silent film performance you know for this movie he's like of course studying Chaplin he's of course studying Buster Keaton I think the part where like Edward Scissorhands is trying to like put on pants and it takes like 90 seconds to watch him try to put on a pair of pants is one of the most like little tramp things that's been in a modern movie I mean that's also by the way all Benny and June also Benny and June oh my god exactly but I think here here specifically in Edward he keeps that personality really pure he's not asking you to feel sorry for Edward He's just being Edward. Edward looks at things. Edward appreciates things. He smiles at things. He doesn't always get the joke. But he's not like batting his eyes at you or being like, audience, please love me. And I think he's taken the core of this Edwardness and put it into like his Wonka, you know, put it Mm -hmm. into like his Mad Hatter and like has been recycling it in a way that makes it less and less interesting. Yeah. But, you know, I also think that's our viewpoint of it. Like, you know, we don't go, oh, that Picasso is so Picasso. <laughs> right? Okay, fair. But then also, I thought it was good to remind myself that what he does with Burton next is they do stuff that's really different. Like, his next two films with Burton are not Edward, right? He does Edwardy no. now, but he wasn't doing Edwardy then. He did, like, Edward, and then he did um, his, like, really uptight, anal retentive Ichabod Crane. Radically different characters. And then I think he backslides. But I think we're also talking about what Tim Burton's attracted to. I think Tim Burton's a person who likes to work with the same people. You see a bunch of these players in all of the movies. Even Jeffrey Jones, you know, pops up in this and he was in a bunch of other uh, Tim Burton films. Like, you you feel that he's safe. He knows what he's going to get from these people. He can communicate with them. Like, there was something that Christopher McQuarrie said on the Light the Fuse podcast where people like, directors can get involved in shtick and he tries very hard to not get into shtick. Like, he just tries to make the best version of something. But I think that some directors can't separate themselves. It's not shtick to them. It's them. And and I, I remember this thing that Wes Anderson said, because remember they were making all these like AI versions of Wes Anderson movies. Wes Anderson's Lord of the Rings, Wes Anderson's Star Wars. And he talked about it. And he's like, someone telling you like, oh, someone does a really good version of you. And he's like, I, I don't know if I want to see a version of me, even if it's good. Because then I'll start to think, is that me? Then I start to get self-conscious about the choices I'm making. Like, I don't think that Tim Burton's like, nah, I'll just throw the same shit at the wall. I think that, like, Tim Burton's like, I like this palette. I'm going to keep on doing it. I'm I'm trying to figure out what I like about it. And sometimes it really connects. And sometimes it just doesn't. Maybe that's part of the problem of being a Burton. Is, like, he is a director that I feel like you could list the five things a Tim Burton movie always has, right? Right. And when you can do that, does that make you sticky by default if you keep using them? Do you feel like, well, I got to make sure I have something with stripes. I got to make sure I have some weird animal whose mouth looks like it's made of traffic cones. Well, if it's coming from a place of, I want to make this versus the studio is making me make this. 
I think that's a different thing. Like, if he, that's what he wants to do. If he only wants to, like, like Pollock didn't go like, well, I've done these splatter paintings. Now what I want to do is, you know, fruit. The problem that we have sometimes is with artists. Like, these are artists. These are people who get caught up in tiny details. And then there are directors who I think can be called artists. But I'm thinking about artists in that sense of these people who are animators, drawers, people like, there's a certain artistry I would think that Martin Scorsese is an artist. He's an artist, but he's not an artist like Wes Anderson or uh, Tim Burton is an artist. You know, there there is a difference there. And I think that oftentimes those people that are like this, we get sick of it. It's like, oh, we've seen that trick. We've seen that trick, but we don't do that to any other art form. You know, Rodney Dangerfield never said, oh yeah, now I do have respect. So I'm going to do a <laughs> bunch of jokes like that. You know, you know, it's like we, we go to see it and... Um, you know, that's what we want to see. I mean, I will say I loved getting to go back and just soak in this Elfman score, oh. you know, and the beautiful mood changes in it. Like, I mean, there's a bunch of musical clips I just want to play because they always they always just tear at my heart. And I'll try to hold myself just to a couple. The one I really want to start with is where Peg is going up into the house for the first time to try to sell her music. And you see her go from being a little bit scared of the outside to seeing the beautiful topiaries on the inside and just that shift. And then I want to play maybe like one of the, the sexiest moments, I think, like that a Tim Burton slash Danny Elfman combination has ever come up with, which is when Joyce is getting her hair cut and she's like curling her toes. And it's just so orgasmic to her. That was the single most thrilling experience of my whole life. And then the last one is just the one that I like have to play, because if I don't play this who am I in life? And it's when Winona Ryder goes outside and she sees him doing the ice sculpture in the backyard. And that to me is just, that's the moment where I cried last night. Again, just like, it is so pure and it is so beautiful. because I want to talk to you about this romance for a little bit because part of me never really buys it and yet it obviously has like an effect on me. There's very little Winona Ryder in this movie. You know, she doesn't say that much. She's sort of around kind of watching things. Her haircut is so weird. I mean, I do think when they show that little pan of like her as a child, there's that little blonde girl. And I do think that actually is Winona being a natural blonde as a child. But the blonde they put on her hair is so strange looking that it always just looks Really weird and artificial. I guess I should be cool with it because nobody else in this movie looks totally normal. What am I saying? But it does kind of creep me out. And I wonder if like the other people they had in mind for this part might have also done a great job like Laura Dern. They were talking about Laura Dern for this at one point to bring your blue velvet in here. Drew Barrymore auditioned and I can really kind of see Drew Barrymore doing this role as well. Like they both have this sunshiny innocence that I think something when Anona Ryder just doesn't really have to me. But I wonder if the, her casting works here just because you know 
because of Beetlejuice, that she has this dark side that makes you believe that maybe she would secretly like Edward after all, that maybe she doesn't secretly like her like sunny suburban life. Isn't she the mirror image of what we talked about with Anthony Michael Hall? You know, someone who looks typically pretty, the blonde cheerleader who actually is the darker goth. Well, it feels like she doesn't maybe have a choice to be anything but the blonde cheerleader in this world, right? I mean, is that what right. you're saying? That she well, doesn't have a, yeah, a template like, right. for being different. Right, she's fitting in. And I don't think that she's dyeing her hair. Maybe she is, I don't know. But she's fitting in that idea of quieting the part of you that doesn't work to be a part of a larger world is something that's very relatable. I, I don't think that that's all there in the film. He creates something where she seems more at peace with Edward than she ever seems anywhere else. I mean, so much so that she starts to be at home with her family and they have this, this conversation and there's something so sweet about that. You know, I can go with this argument you're taking me on. Maybe the dimension of her that I was always kind of like graded at me, but that I should just sort of like accept through a different lens is that her character just very much is not supposed to be like this either and doesn't want to be. But there's no way for her to become like a punk or something like right. that. Right, there's, no yeah. there's no other way to be in this world. Oh, but then when she's older, she just stays still kind of normy. Well, I mean, what grandmas have mohawks? Maybe grandmas should have mohawks. Do you know grandmas with mohawks? I don't know any, but I feel like we're going to get to see some more. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Looking at it, I, I, like there is a sadness to that. Like she still stays there to be close to him. And she's living like a lie at the end. Oh, you think she stays there to be close to him? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> you know, as we're talking about this movie, there's one other scene I just have to call attention to. It's the scene where the movie could have ended, where Edward is, you know, found in this house. They think he's a burglar. They ask him to put up his hands, but his hands are knives. They think that he's carrying a weapon. And he could be shot. I, I love how this comes back at the end. And it's the reason why he got away, which is why I keep on going back to that idea that this is a movie that also is talking about how, you know, the lens in which we view race. Um, but I, I love this moment because it's played in a way that feels very different than the rest of the film. Yeah. It really just feels like the intrusion of like actual real terror. I mean, I think if the movie ended here, it would have been... Fine. It would have probably had the same length as Frankenstein and and would have found that same pattern. But I love the fact that the one person who actually understood him was the person who probably had experienced racism himself. Oh, I didn't even make that association, but it is interesting. That officer is the one who also kind of picks up the thread of like, is he going to be okay? Because now I'm thinking about all the false endings this movie does have. The Frankenstein, the villagers kill him ending. And then right here, right after that, you've got like this psycho ending where the psychologist comes in and he's like, let me tell you everything that's going on with this guy. Will he be okay, Doc? The years spent in isolation have not equipped him with the tools necessary to judge right from wrong. He's had no context. He's been completely without guidance. Furthermore, his work, the garden sculptures, hairstyles and so forth, indicate that he's a highly imaginative uh, character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. But will he be all right out there? Well, yeah, he'll be fine. I mean, that part always makes me laugh. He's like, he's absolutely screwed up for good. He's going to be fine. You know, that's just like, he'll be okay. Pat him on the back. Let's move on here. Let's not think about this much more. 
It's funny, like we were talking on our last episode about how they really wanted the Emperor's New Groove to be like this myth about the elements, this like ancient creation myth, and they couldn't figure out how to do it, and they dropped the whole creation myth thing. But here's a movie that just sort of low-key is like, oh yeah, and we're also a creation myth about the origin of snow. How do you know he's still alive? I don't know, not for sure, but... I believe he is. You see, before he came down here, it never snowed. And afterwards, it did. What I love about this is appearances can be deceiving. Yes, it looks like snow, but it's actually not snow. It is manufactured by someone who is pining for his love, right? That to me is like, oh, we accept it as, oh, it's finally snowing in this town, but we're not actually looking like, well, what's actually there? Why is that going on? I mean, that's climate change. That's whatever. You know, it's like we we just accept it. And for what it is, but maybe we don't critically think about anything. And that, to me, is, again, the whole underlining thing that's going on here. We don't critically think about our choices. We just kind of make them. And if we if they go south, we let them go. And there's a lot here. And I feel like if he brought anything to anyone, he probably most affected this family and Winona Ryder being the person he most affected in that family to think a little bit differently. What year do you think this is even happening in? I don't know. I mean, I also understand that, like, it doesn't even have to be a year. It just is this this time, you know, and then maybe the fact that Anthony Michael Hall's car that's more current than the houses kind of represents what Burbank is. Like, Burbank is this little suburb that is not changing, even though the world around it is. It's like you can live in your small town, and your small town may not move forward, but it, once you step out of it, it does. Well, now I want to have this theory where, like... If this is happening in 1990 because of the VCRs and the van, that Winona Ryder, she's like 17 here. She looks like she's 80 when she's a grandmother. So that's like, I'm bad at math, 60 years. So that's like 2050. Okay. So maybe this is like a post-apocalyptic world where there is no water or precipitation anymore. And like global warming has gotten to a point where this is the only place in snow because of Edward Scissorhands. Wait, wait. She's not saying it's the only place of snow. She's saying it never snowed here before that because it's they're in, like, California or Florida. Let me have my fantasy. Let me okay. have my fantasy. This is like a Mad Max world <laughs> okay. where it's, like, all brutal. I mean, okay. but Burton was, like, one of the dumb studio notes that he would get was people would ask him, like, where did Edward get the ice? And he would just say, go see Three Men and a Little Lady if that's your thing. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, on that note, I do have some random clips I want to play. Right. One of them is... um. Tim Burton talking about how he knew that he had actually totally made it as a filmmaker. At what point did you realize I've arrived, I am successful, I've made my mark? What was there a was there a defining moment where you realized? Well, I, one thing, kind of the weird things, like like uh, when they make porno movies based on your films. <laughs> um, like what? Which Ed, films? Edward, Edward Penis Hands. <laughs> 
That was what, that was what, somebody gave me that tape and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And there was like a room, there was like 20 people in the room, and by the end of the movie, there was me and one other person left. Well, what was it like? What is Edward Penis well, Hands I like? Well, I thought it was going to be, I was excited that there would be like five penises on the, but it was only one on each. And see, then, see, you can't help but improve a movie. That's... You're looking at Edward Penis and it's like, no, 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 we got to do this right. And they, and they squirted, too. It was All weird. right. <laughs> I have to admit, I'm kind of just, I, th I always imagined Edward Penis Hands had five penises on each hand, too. Me, too. I can't too. believe he only had one penis on each hand. Well, I mean, you know, dildos are tough to finance. <laughs> sure. And then have you heard this clip that was that's like a little bit more recently from the news? Where, you know, the guy who's who was on the site formerly known as Twitter, John Hendren, his handle was like at F-A-R-T. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever hear about this clip where a news channel was doing a piece on Edward Snowden and they thought they were getting a different expert to come on and talk about Edward Snowden, but they accidentally made contact with John Hendren, who agreed to come on and talk about Edward Snowden. And instead of that, this is the exchange. Do you think Snowden's actions were worth that risk? Well, you know, to say that he couldn't harm somebody, uh, you know, with what he did, um, like he could, uh, absolutely he could have. Um, but I think to cast him out to, uh, to make him invalid in society uh, simply because he has scissors for hands, I mean, that's, that's so strange because, I mean, people didn't get scared until he started uh, sculpting shrubs into dinosaur shapes and whatnot. All right, well, now Snowden's living in Russia. At Chris Zapp tweeted this. Dear Edward Snowden, what do you make of the massive Russian misinformation campaign going on? Well, yeah, casting him out is just completely wrong. Um, we're, we're treating him like an animal, like a, uh, somebody who should be quarantined and put away. Uh, just because he was created on top of a mountain by Vincent Price and uh, incomplete with scissors for hands and no heart, uh, Edward Scissorhands is a complete hero to me. But what about the choice that he made to live in a country like Russia? I mean, where else is he going to go? You know, uh, we cast him out. Like, we uh, we got scared when he poked a hole in a waterbed with his scissor finger. Like, that was uh, just unreasonable of us. Well, John, I appreciate you giving us your opinion. Thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is wild. Bowl. now you've given me... You've given me so much to watch. And by the way, um, if you are interested in Edward Penis Hands, there are many cuts of the film online that have uh, no porn in them. So you really? can really enjoy. Oh, yeah. Here, listen. So, Edward, how do you like your food? Does he have to stay with us? He's disgusting. Now, Susan, be polite. So, Edward, have you thought about what you're going to do in the future? Maybe proctology is an option. <laughs> now, honey, give him time. Mom, he's gross. He's just gross. There you go. That's a little. That's a little taste of it. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I am. I will say the costume, the co the wig work is pretty great on that too. And you know, honestly, if I was a maker of those films, I would make him have scissors for penises. Oh ah. ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said penises, but anyway, there you go. This has been really fascinating. And you know what? It was a movie that I was excited to watch. And, you know, I guess the question I have for you is, is it a Christmas movie? Oh, I think so. I mean, not even just the Christmas setting and all the lights on the houses, but I think it has something about the spirit of Christmas in it. The ideal Christmas, which is open your hearts to your neighbors. Take in the strange boy from from beyond. You could even say he's an immaculate conception. Wow. Well, with that, I mean... 
I agree with you. I think it is a Christmas movie. It's a nice one to add to the rotation. We have done a lot of different Christmas films here on the show. I mean, we've talked about Love Actually. We've talked about Home Alone. It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas Story. And all of those are available right now. But I I always go back to Love Actually because, you know, we had one of the first people who got out in front of that movie and said it was garbage. And that was Lindy West. I believe her essay that she wrote was shit, actually. And if you are in the holiday mood, these are really fun episodes. I'm actually even going to be on an episode this month of Die Hard with a podcast where I make my case that I made to you slightly uh, that Home Alone is just Die Hard. (laughs) And you know what? As we talk about the movies that we've done, it is that time of year, Amy, for us to wrap it up. That's right. Wrap up the season. Another end of the year has brought us here, and now it is time to look back on all the movies that we have done and see what goes on the list. I mean, there are going to be some interesting choices here. So think back about all the episodes that we've done last year. I will be doing that. We'll come in with our picks and then battle it out to maybe get another couple on this list. And I will tell you, this one was a hard one. This was really hard. This was really hard. I'm excited to do it. I'm excited to do it. And I'm also excited to do kind of a little bit of a year-end wrap-up. Maybe briefly point out movies you should catch up on over your winter break if you haven't seen them yet. Some friends of Unspooled are going to come on and share their favorite movies of 2023. Cannot wait. All right. We will see you next time on Unspooled. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP... Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.